0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill.
2: Hello, I'm Cassie Half. It's great that you could join me for The Country Hour today. Coming up, I'll tell you how the search for answers as to why the livestock ship that sunk in a typhoon two years ago has gone.
3: I feel so much for the families. It's just that you never get any closure of what actually happened to your, you know, your son or your brother. And it's been devastating for them.
2: 40 of the 43 people on board have never been found, including the two Australians on board, so I'll have more on that soon. Also, goat meat prices are going the way of sheep and cattle. More on that soon. But first up today, lumpy skin disease is edging closer to Australia's north with reports the virus has reached East Java. The viral disease was first detected in Sumatra in March. Dr Ross Ainsworth is a Bali-based vet who has spent 40 years working between the Northern Territory and Southeast Asia. And he says the movement of the disease closer to Australian shores is concerning.
4: There is a confirmed case that I've seen some documentation on from East Java, and that's in the last week or so. There was a confirmed case or a number of confirmed cases in Central Java in September. And uh, as of a few weeks ago till now there are also lots more unconfirmed cases and it's pretty easy disease to recognize so the unconfirmed cases are in southern Sumatra, west Java, central Java and east Java so it's pretty much it would appear fairly certain that the disease is now spread throughout Java all the way to the east and the implication is that the next cab off the rank will be infection in Bali.
0: Right. Okay. So, for those that don't have an overview of what Indonesia looks like, how much closer does this bring lumpy skin disease to the north of Australia, geographically speaking?
4: It's probably an extra thousand kilometres closer. So it's very significant, and it demonstrates that the disease is heading in an eastward direction towards Timor, where the real risk. Will come from the uh, potential of insects flying across or being blown across the ocean uh, to northern Australia.
0: You mentioned that Bali was the next cab off the rank as lumpy skin moves further east. If it were to get to Bali, what sort of risk does that pose to Australia? Does that mean, you know, Mozzies could be coming back on flights as tourists come home? What's your take on that?
4: Yes, look, it's not like uh, foot and mouth where it's so easy to carry on humans and other inanimate objects. So the risk is not that the people will take it with them back to Australia. The risk is that it's then that much closer to Timor, where the distance across the ocean to Darwin is the least. So if, and it's a big if. If the insects carrying the virus can be blown across the Timor Sea, then every step towards the east in that direction is a bad thing. But Bali doesn't represent a risk for tourists taking it home, I don't think. A very small risk anyway. But uh, as I said, we simply don't know enough about this disease to predict it.
0: What do we know about how it spread so far?
4: Well, that's the issue, really. We know so little about this disease, so much guesswork and so little hard scientific information. We don't know exactly which uh, insects carry it. We don't know how far they go. There is, uh, some people are pretty confident that the spread throughout Java is by movement of of animals themselves or uh, infected material from animals, and that's quite possible, in fact, probable. The movement restrictions in Indonesia are a bit hit and miss, so it's possible for animals to move and spread the disease. It's not permitted to bring cattle and buffalo into Bali from Java, so that will be a good test of the movement of the disease. If the disease gets here, that will provide some sort of probable uh, proof that the disease is transmitted to Bali through insects. The problem is that this disease has been infecting countries that don't have major cattle industries that export cattle and therefore depend on those cattle industries for their income so it's it's never been seriously studied they just use a live vaccine and it more or less sort of keeps it under control but australia doesn't have the luxury of using live vaccines for new diseases so we need to know a lot more about this disease and we need better vaccines we need uh, lots of research And uh, unfortunately, we have to start almost from scratch.
0: How is the vaccine rollout going in Indonesia?
4: Very slow. So the big push, of course, is to vaccinate for foot-and-mouth disease, and that's uh, rightly so. It's a more serious disease for them at the moment. And also, they're just strapped for cash. You know, they've had to raid their treasury for the large sums of money necessary to, to buy vaccines. The, the buying the vaccines probably the easier part. The more difficult part is finding the money to get that vaccine delivered into the cow. You have to get it out into the regions. You have to hire a lot of staff. You have to train them how to do the vaccination. Then you've got to provide them with all the gear. Just to make matters even more complicated, when there's both foot and mouth and lumpy skin in the country, you can't use a multiple dose vaccine syringe like we all do in Australia. You can't do that when there's a disease that's spread by a live virus. So you have to use a single syringe, throw it away, pull out another one, load up, and give the next animal a shot. So very, very expensive, slow. To make matters even worse, if you go to a farm in Australia, you might have 100 cows, you might have 1,000, and you're there and you get the job done. In Indonesia, the average herd is two. So you go to the farm, you do your biosecurity, you put your boots on and scrub them and whatever other biosecurity. Then you do two head, then you have to take it all off and clean it all up or get some new stuff and go to the next place. Very, very difficult, slow and expensive.
0: With all that in mind, how are you feeling about lumpy skin disease and how do you rate its chances of coming over to the north of Australia?
4: In my opinion, it's a 100% chance it will get here. There's plenty of doubt about whether it could potentially be blown across the Timor Sea, like lots of other viruses get blown across in the wet season. But if that's the case, and it can't come that way, then it simply continues through the island chain of Indonesia towards the east, gets to New Guinea, goes through New Guinea, and then comes down across into Australia through the Torres Strait, which is a very short distance, and there's absolutely no risk that insects couldn't fly across there if the disease is in New Guinea. So, I, I think it's just a matter of time. Whether it's one year, 10 years, we just don't know.
2: Hopefully, that doesn't pan out, but uh, that is the opinion of Bali based vet Dr. Ross Aimsworth, who was speaking with Steph Sinclair. An ABC investigation has revealed the owner of a livestock ship that sunk in a typhoon two years ago had dozens of safety breaches flagged by maritime authorities. Gulf Livestock One, which was carrying 600 heifers from New Zealand to China, sank in the waters of Japan in 2020. Forty of the 43 people on board have never been found, including Australians Australians William Mainprice and Lucas Order. Rural reporter Angus Verley spoke with Alison McClima, producer of the ABC's investigative unit, about their investigation.
3: The new stuff that we found was the uh, financial situation of the owner of Gulf Livestock One, which is Gulf Navigation Holding, out of Dubai. And at the time when Gulf Livestock One capsized in the East China Sea in September 2020, it was, you know, it was more or less insolvent they had been in financial difficulties for some time. And we found that sort of, you know, up until that time, I think it was a half a billion dollars they were in debt.
5: So how does the, the financial instability of the ship owner relate to uh, the condition of the ship and perhaps why it did sink?
3: I don't really know. it's coincidental that there were so many breaches, like safety breaches and what they call deficiencies, on Gulf Livestock One, I think there was 34 breaches, and it had been detained in Broome in 2019 for a number of, I think it was for a number of failures. And up until when the vessel sunk in 2020, it had had a number of deficiencies, including those major ones like engine failure, and it failed on the journey a couple of times.
5: That's right, and you've got some communication from the two Australians who were on board and who lost their lives. Texting back to Australia, back to their friends and families, just reporting on on the uh, the rickety state of the, the vessel. I suppose.
3: Yes, I mean, I feel so much for the families. It's just that you would never get any closure of what actually happened to your, you know, your son or your brother, and uh, it's been devastating for them. And I don't know if they quite realise how bad it was when they were, you know, texting and sending photos back to the family, because you can't. In the in the vision that you see, it looks bad, but it must have been a lot worse than what it was.
5: You also report on this vessel. You report on the safety issues with it. Uh, it was an old vessel, or was converted from a container carrier. And at the same time, the ship's captain proceeded along its original path and into the path of this typhoon that that eventually sunk it. While other commercial vessels in the region deviated from their
3: course? Yes, the Gulf Livestock One was built in 2002 and it was converted to a livestock vessel in about 2015. And I'm not an expert on this, but, you know, maritime experts do say that livestock... When a cargo ship is converted into a livestock vessel, it's not as stable. But why the captain went straight into a typhoon when other, you know, ships... Went in other directions. I mean, who knows? I don't know if he was directed to go there or who knows. No one's ever going to know.
5: As I mentioned, two Australians were on board William Mainprize, a stockman from Sydney, and a veterinarian, Lucas Order, from Queensland. You spoke with Lucas Order's parents and they questioned why so much money and time and effort was spent on the search for Malaysia Airlines Flight 370 but not an equivalent search effort for this ship, which is still yet to be found?
3: It's true. You know, Dr Orders, he was saying that, you know, they spend all this money on trying to find planes that have gone down, but when it comes to a livestock vessel with 43 people on board, they just they think the government hasn't been interested at all. And so they're really trying to push for that, but, you know, whether that will happen, it's you know, it's not in Australian waters, so who knows...
5: Who can do that? And Alison, with this ship, uh, we should point that, like many ships, it was registered in Panama, and that means that the, the authority that's responsible for investigating why it's sunk is it's not Australian or New Zealand authorities, it's the Panama Maritime Authority. And can, can you talk me through that and also why so many vessels are registered in Panama and, and other like countries?
3: I think they're registered in, in countries like Panama to get around sort of any kind of things about crewing and about you know, safety and things like that. They get around it that way. So it's called a flag of convenience when, when your ship is flagged there. And I think it's probably for tax reasons as well. So the Gulf Livestock One is owned by a shell company in the Panama, and that shell company is then owned by Gulf Navigation Holdings. So it's very hard for the families to take legal action against the, uh, the company in Dubai because it's owned in the Panama. The rules of the sea are just kind of lawless. You know, people can get away with a lot. And the Panama you know, Maritime Authority hasn't released that report. It's been sitting there. I have called them on a number of occasions and they wouldn't tell me when it's been released. But it's, you know, the families don't hope for any sort of answers with that.
5: And I know you don't have that report, but from your investigation and from the people you spoke to, this vessel, Gulf Livestock One, should it have been on the waters?
3: I can't say that. You know, I I don't know. It definitely had a lot of problems and it should have been checked on a more regular basis, I think.
2: Alison McClymouth, producer of the ABC's investigative unit, speaking with Angus Verley. It's coming up to 19 minutes past 12.
1: You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill.
2: Goat meat prices have plummeted more than $5 a kilogram as supply continues to surge. In June, prices peaked at $0.920 a kilogram. Since then, over the hook's rates have declined, though, by $0.361 a kilo. Meat and Livestock Australia's senior market analyst Ripley Atkinson is speaking here with Cara Jeffrey about the price pinch.
6: The main thing that is driving it is certainly supply. So supply in the second half of this year, comparative to 2020 and 2021 volumes, has been very much above for the vast majority um, between, between June and now when that, that market was at 905 cents a kilo carcass weight. So supply is placing significant downward pressure on, on the hook's prices for goats at the minute.
7: With the price coming back to about three hundred and sixty one cents a kilo at the moment versus nine twenty cents a kilo at its peak in June, is there still profit in it for producers when prices slip so much?
6: The way to to look at it definitely is the fact that even though the market has softened um, in, um, in, in a reaction to such a significant increase in supply is also there's, there's more goats available uh, for the producer to then, to then offload. So it's definitely an excellent time to be, uh, to be investing and in, in producing goat meat. And clearly the seasonal conditions as well have been supportive of, of increased um, marking rates of kids and, and those sorts of things.
7: MLA had reported that for the 21-22 period that uh, 1.56 million goats had been processed nationally. So looking... Now, uh, into this next period, do you think that it could exceed things for the um, 22, start of 23 period? Do you think it could even be higher than 1.56?
6: So what we know so far is uh, the slaughter rates or the number of goats we've processed between June and and now, uh, first week of December, have been very solid for the most part. We did see a softening in rates, uh, you know, during, um, in the last month or so, and even though those rates have softened, they've historically been a lot higher than the last couple of uh, last couple of years, 2020 and 2021. And carcass weights, we know, in the third quarter for goats actually increased to 17.5 kilos. So, increased supply, increased carcass weights will provide an increase in production, and um, and and the seasonal conditions are obviously supporting better operational um, procedures for producers to. To produce more product with more weight, so the possibility is there. Um, it's it's now just up to to that supply being made available moving forwards.
7: You mentioned an increase in weight. What have you seen prior to that increase?
6: Typically, the the average carcass weight for the last sort of five years or so has been around fifteen kilos, um, and we have seen that uh, that carcass weight actually drop below fifteen in the second quarter of this year. But it did improve in the September quarter as we saw um, saw some sort of favourable conditions in those, those western New South Wales and Queensland regions for, for weight to be added. With
7: so much goat being processed in Australia, where is all this goat meat going to?
6: It's a really exciting space um, to be watching and, and to be engaging with at the minute the goat meat export market for Australia. And because we've had such a, a really strong improvement in production, we're seeing uh, year-to-date exports to October up by 28%. Um, across all the countries we export to, which is around 20. And the United States has, has, a, has had a really solid year. Um, it's year-on-year year, exports increase are up 15%. South Korea's exports are up 95%. Um, Canada is up 25%. Taiwan up 9%. So it also – the export space also indicates – how diverse um, the range of goat meat products we deliver into into a number of different countries. So it's been a really exciting space to watch, and the United States, which takes around sixty to sixty five percent of our product, is really the leader in in that that space as well. So it's been fantastic to see the demand globally for this product, and it really validates producers that are investing in genetics and and infrastructure to to produce goats uh, on their properties.
7: So why the huge increase into South
6: Korea? It's, a lot of it has to do with consumers becoming accustomed to the product and being able to appreciate and understand and, and they're becoming more educated and sophisticated in how they consume it, which is really important. And that's the same for a lot of other uh, countries um, that, you know, in, in other red meats such as lamb, for example, in, in different countries, as consumers become more comfortable and accustomed with how to consume that product in a way that they enjoy, their demand naturally increases.
7: With the price sitting now around that three sixty cents a kilogram, how does that fit historically? Is that where goat meat in Australia, you know, is is more priced rather than the highs of nine hundred cents a kilogram?
6: It it would be fair to say that the current market um, is softer, but um, that's also in line with with a significant number of um, of goats available. So yes, it's probably below, or it is it is below sort of longer term price trends. But uh, it's also we're also in a situation at the minute with the supply being so significant, and the global macroeconomic situation is also you know operating in a way that um, that affects that. But. It's still in a very healthy situation for the long term, the actual overall goat industry and the producer confidence at that operational level right through to the international demand I've been talking about, which is really important and it underpins the long term success of, of where the industry has the capacity to go.
2: Meat and Livestock Australia, Senior Market Analyst Ripley Atkinson speaking there with Cara Jeffrey. We'll head across to the Bureau of Meteorology now because after some warmth on the weekend it's cooling off again. Tom Bowick, Senior Forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology, what's going on?
1: Uh, yeah, well Cassie, it's a very unusual weather pattern for this time of year so uh, look we have had the change obviously move through in the weekend and uh, um, there was even some thunderstorm activity around the parts of the agricultural area, and the highest rainfalls in the state uh, in the 24 hours to 9am this morning: uh, 11.8 millimetres at Warabra Forest, uh, 11.2 at uh, Grenock in the Barossa. There, we're 10.8 at Edinburgh Airport to the north, and and in the southeast they got 10.6 millimetres there at uh, Narracourt. Now, um, the weather pattern. Now we we've got this high pressure system which is forming to the well to the south of Western Australia, uh, and there's um, Look, going to be a number of systems sort of moving through Tasmania and Victoria for the next few days in, in the way of um, the fronts and a, and a low pressure system there. And uh, um, that will keep the pattern, um, as far as SA is concerned, fairly fairly static actually. So that highs are going to be pretty well stationary for the next few days to the south of WA. There's a pretty strong system. Um, we do. However, have one front that sort of moves moves through over South Australia uh, during during Tuesday from the south there, so that will see some some shower activity sort of increasing again. Uh, speaking of showers, at the moment there is still some isolated shower activity over the uh, agricultural area. Not too much in that, but um, the odd sort of shower is is still around, and uh, they'll tend to ease back um, uh, during the afternoon and, and into the evening there, probably and contracting southwards as well. But uh, yeah, there will be another increase tomorrow as that sort of next. Front System moves up from the south, and obviously with that pattern of the deep southwest to southerly airstream, it's going to be remaining. unseasonably sort of cool um, for really all of the state temperatures well below average there. Um, We've even got a chance of some small hail tomorrow and southern parts of the uh, low, lower southeast district to give you an indication of uh, the coldness in the atmosphere. For Wednesday then uh, in the wake of that front perhaps a bit of drying but still some isolated showers for the southern agricultural area. Apart from that it, uh, it should be sort of dry throughout, the only exception there is in the far northwest we do have a little bit of instability just moving into the that area, could be a chance of some isolated showers and thunderstorms. We're continuing with uh, with our south to southeasterly airstream at that uh, stage, should be sort of fresh at times. Uh, then moving into Thursday, still, the high moves a little bit further east but only sort of to the area sort of well south of the Bight there uh, and Airstream perhaps just goes a little bit more south-southeasterly um, which will see uh, showers contracting further south, not too many left, just some isolated light showers possible for the southern coasts, also the southern parts of the Mount Lofty Ranges and the lower southeast district. And some of the activity in the west there moves a little further eastwards. So, some isolated chows and thunderstorms possible um, for areas to the northwest of about Udna to Nullarbor, further in the south there. So, um, some instability coming into those areas. Uh, For Friday then, uh, the high is still not really moving a lot, but perhaps a little bit further eastwards. uh, um, Any showers left, not many, just a chance about the southern coast and still have that weather in the northwest in the same sort of position there, uh, but generally dry over the remainder. By that stage, it should be cool to mild in the southeast, grading to warm uh, in the north and west. Uh, for the period of Saturday to to Monday, then uh, it'll be dry in the south. Uh, the high will start to sort of move eastwards, and we'll get a sort of more of an easterly airstream. Temperatures coming up uh, gradually, so it should be becoming warmer throughout, without really leaping up uh, a lot. But uh, yeah, m- moving in a in an upwards direction there, temperature-wise, reaching sort of hot in the far north. Um, and uh, still that activity continuing in the northwest. Now, rainfall totals until the end of Friday less than two millimetres for the northern ags, two to five for the southern ags, five to 15 millimetres for the south of the lower southeast, uh, and the, the weather in the northwest. Uh, 1 to 5 millimetres but increasing to 5 to 20 in the northwest. west some isolated totals of 20 to 40 millimetres possible uh, in the far west there with thunderstorms.
2: Cassie? Thank you so much for that. Tom Bowick from the Bureau of Meteorology. In the far west of New South Wales the upper western will be sunny tomorrow getting down to tw- 11 to 14 degrees overnight but to the mid to high 20s during the day. Lower western partly cloudy similar down to 9. Day temperatures reaching the low to mid 20s It's coming up to 12.30
1: You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Cassie Huff. Cassie Huff.
2: Hello, it's great to have your company this afternoon. Christmas is just around the corner, two weeks to go, can you believe it? It's a time when we indulge in some special seasonal foods like cherries and turkey and seafood for example, but uh, while some things are behind schedule like cherries, it's looking like there's going to be a plethora of pineapple this
8: year. So this is the worst case of natural flowering in the history of the pineapple industry in Queensland everyone seems to be in the same situation so the problem will be is the bulk of Queensland's pineapple crop is all going to come on over two or three months and then there'll be less during the middle of the year.
2: So given pineapples will be coming out our ears this summer, I'd love to know your favourite way to eat them. I tried making pineapple lamingtons with actual pineapple in them. Tasted great, but you wouldn't say they were particularly successful as lamingtons, so more like a slab in the end. But I'd love to know what you like to do with your pineapple, given we could have a lot of them on our supermarket shelves over the next couple of months. You can text me 0467 922 891 or phone 1300 three hundred triple two eight nine one. And if you're looking for a turkey at Christmas, they might be a little harder to find this year. I'll tell you more on that soon, but first, Matt Coleman has the news. Hi, Matt.
4: Hello, Cassie. In the news this afternoon, police say that a man was shot dead in Adelaide South last night. The 41-year-old victim was found lying on a road with a gunshot wound on Dunorland Road at Edwardstown. He was taken to hospital but pronounced dead soon after. Meanwhile, police say a search and rescue operation ended when two men on a broken-down jet ski washed ashore on the west coast overnight. They launched from Venus Bay about 4.30 yesterday, but the jet ski failed and they could not swim to shore. Police say the men made it to shore at Port Kenny just before 4 o'clock this morning and were uninjured. And Adelaide Airport has added an extra security check-in lane to process passengers at a steadier rate, with bigger queues expected for the peak holiday season. It's also boosted staff numbers at check-in points to 230. More news at one
2: o'clock. Thanks for that. Matt Coleman there. Now, uh, anyone after Christmas, after a Christmas South Australian free-range turkey from a butcher may have a harder time finding this year. Now Puginagoric free-range turkeys outside of Bordertown will soon be the only independent turkey farm in South Australia and they can't produce enough product to meet demand. Owner John Watson says his staff have been working around the clock to get orders ready but increasing costs are having an impact on operations.
9: It's busy all the time but this takes busy to another level. It's just the nature of the industry. If we weren't busy now I suppose we'd done something badly wrong so uh, it's been going on like this for Well, we started 31 years ago on this location, and um, it's obviously got busier and busier, but it's um, got almost unmanageable for us now. So it's just myself and my wife, Robin, trying to man the ship, but we also supply a lot of stuff interstate as well. So it's uh, it's not really manageable anymore. It's just got too busy. All our customers, clients all around Australia, they know that we, we try and serve everybody, and it just... It's got to the point where we can't. So we've done a pretty good job of it. We, I think 90% of our customers have got everything they will get, everything they've ordered. All our frozen product is either in Adelaide, Melbourne, Darwin, or on in transit. So it's uh, we've, we've got there.
10: And how many uh, heads of turkey a year are you selling?
9: Well, it'd be in, in excess of uh, 26,000. But an interesting stat that we worked out a couple of years ago, and it would be on the conservative side, that we are busy all year round doing fresh cut-up product as well. But uh, on Christmas Day, with what's in the freezers and what goes out fresh, in excess of 300,000 people eat our product on Christmas Day. I just come to that figure by working out how many kilos are in the freezer and how much fresh we sell uh, Christmas week and just divided it by 200 grams. That's what the answer was. (laughs) So it's uh, surprised us, but it is, uh, for a little business like us, stuck at Puginagorik, 15 k south of Bordertown, virtually in the middle of nowhere, it is uh, quite... Overwhelming to think that that's how many people would be eating our product at lunchtime on Christmas Day.
10: And why do you think turkey farming is not more popular?
9: Oh, there's a couple of different reasons. One is, for a start, that it's impossible to well, virtually impossible to hatch your own turkeys because the turkeys we use, their grandparents are from bloodlines from America, like the best turkeys in the world. And all our turkeys are a result of artificial insemination. From and we get them from the Inghams Hatchery in Sydney. That is a limiting factor. The fact that you you've really got to get all your turkeys from sydney we've we have ours flown in to adelaide every three weeks get around about 1500 every three weeks but then it's just the nature of the beast uh, very very tricky to look after i have been doing it 31 years and every now and again they still find a way that can outsmart me too so and uh, i say to be a turkey farmer you've got to be uh, very resilient and reasonably stupid i'm actually got to touch of both so uh, it's uh it's maybe why we've lasted as long as we have it's seven days a week got to be here and uh, looking after them and uh, If it's too hot, they don't like it, and if it's too cold, they don't like it. It is difficult, and when we say there's not very many turkey farmers in Australia, it sort of tells you something, because if it was easy, there'd be a turkey farm down the end of every road, and there's obviously there's not.
10: Should people be expecting their turkeys to cost a bit more this year, maybe, than last year?
9: They certainly will, because there's been some major impacts on our business, all to do with what's happening in Russia, with the price of gas and fuel, and of course... uh, price of feed's gone up we're the only people in the state that don't like high feed prices because farmers are doing really really well but for us it's a massive impact on our cost of production so we've put our prices up marginally but who knows whether it's enough or not just every single thing is like that and you don't want to be labeled as a whinger but we talk to a lot of other people in business and every single person's saying the same so our uh, our prices have obviously had to go up otherwise we wouldn't be here.
10: Poo Janagorik Free Range Turkey's owner John Watson Another turkey farm having issues with rising costs is freshwater turkeys in the state's mid-north. They have been supplying turkeys to butchers across Australia but will be stopping after Christmas this year. Owner Claire Longbottom says she and husband Jason have had no choice but to wrap up their turkey operations due to increasing costs.
11: The economy prices of fuel and the feed that we buy in from the feed mill, the prices have just gone so high. The feed has pretty much doubled in price from since we first started doing it intensively to now. And if we were to double all our prices to what we were doing at to compensate for the price of the feed, it would just be at a point where butchers will decline to buy them because then they have to put their prices up and the customers don't want to be buying turkeys for such an astronomical price. So product is, do a great product and it's a pity that, you know, consumers just won't, purchase a product at the price that it should be.
10: How long had you been turkey farming for?
11: We've been breeding and growing out commercial white since about 2014-15. We realised after breeding a few one year that there was a, a demand for them and so then we went a bit more commercialised with that and buying them in as day olds rather than just breeding them. Yeah, so we just sort of went one thing to another and just grew from there till now end of 2022, we'll finish up with commercial side of it.
10: How are you feeling about it? Is it disappointing to have to leave this behind?
11: Yeah, there is there is a great sadness in me at this time of year when I have to talk to my customers that I have made and relations with friends and customers that have been there since the day dot and got a turkey roll off me or got a whole bird or yeah so that is uh that's the hard thing i'm finding at the moment when i get these people that say oh can i get a turkey off you and i'm like yeah sure but this is going to be the last year and It's really hard to, you feel like you're letting people down and that you've started something for these people and their families at this time of year and their Christmas traditions on their table. That is the sad bit this time of year that I'm sort of (laughs) grieving through at the moment. But um, then I look at my bank accounts that I owe, you know, and just think, you know, obviously it's not paying enough dividends to do it for the love of it and for the friends that I've made along the way.
2: Claire Longbottom from Freshwater Turkeys speaking with Elsie Adamo. Uh, it's uh, unfortunate to hear someone going out of business, particularly given the demand for turkeys. It sounds like a lot of people are really keen to get a turkey on their Christmas plate this year. But uh, the Pujinagorok Free Range Turkeys outside Bordertown is still operating, but they're going to be the only independent turkey farm in South Australia uh, come the new year. Speaking of uh, broad use, there isn't an oversupply of turkeys grown in South Australia, but there are farmers facing an oversupply of some products this summer, and they're worried about what they're going to do with the excess. Now, pineapples are one such fruit, so I thought we could help them out with some ideas on what to do with them. And people are coming to the party. John has a bit of a savory option pineapple and tofu curry. Haven't tried that. That does sound delightful. But I'm loving the sweet options. Francis from Brighton is suggesting crushed mint with pineapple is beautiful. That does sound lovely. Lovely and fresh, Francis. I love the sound of that. And Anthony loves grilling pineapple on the barbecue, serving it with coconut ice cream and a little maple syrup. That does sound quite decadent and delicious. Thanks so much for texting in. You can keep those texts coming 0467 922 891 or phone 1300 222 But in the meantime, producers are also calling for consumers to look for foods in high supply this Christmas, as Ashley Bagshaw reports.
12: A year plagued by floods, fires and droughts has left many producers reeling from losses to their crops. But those who've seen a good season are experiencing a very different type of struggle, with the glut in industries like pineapples and red wine, leaving producers worried. North Queensland pineapple grower John Zelenka says an unusually cold winter in Queensland, the state where the majority of the country's pineapples are produced, has spelled trouble for the
8: industry. This year we've had an enormous amount of natural flowering to the point of in our smooth leaf it's probably at about 50 percent and in our hybrids it's probably 80 or 90 percent.
12: And do you have any idea what's brought on this flowering?
8: I spoke to a couple of people and they seem to think that it was that we had five very cold days in winter and all the planets sort of aligned and this this actually happened it caused it. It's the worst case of Natural flowering in the history of pineapple industry in Queensland,
12: and I'm guessing you've spoken to growers across other regions as well, then.
8: Yeah, and everyone seems to be in the same situation. So the problem will be is the bulk of Queensland's pineapple crop is all going to come on over two or three months, and then there'll be less during the middle of the year.
12: And so, where does your fruit primarily go then?
8: Uh, We supply all. Local markets around in the Mackay region, the IGAs, and and a lot of private fruit vendors, and then we also send quite a bit to Brisbane and Melbourne.
12: What is the plan going forward as a grower?
8: (laughs) I'm not quite sure. We'll just have to see what we can do to get. I'll probably push to try and get even rid of even more in this region because I'd be pretty assured that the price in the big markets in Melbourne. Brisbane and Sydney will be not that high if there's a massive oversupply. They just need to eat a heap of pineapple over summer.
12: And how many pineapples would each person have to eat? Four or
8: five a day.
12: North Queensland pineapple farmer John Zelenka. Meanwhile South Australia's red wine sector has been experiencing an ongoing glut and producers are anticipating another tough year in 2023. Managing Director of Taylor's Wines Mitchell Taylor says the industry is continuing to struggle to find markets to send product to.
13: Yes, we're seeing quite severe oversupply because we've had the factor with China a couple of years ago, all of a sudden decided to put Horrendous tariffs on our wines of 218%. So, all this red wine that that needed to be aged, that was developed in the vineyards, really hasn't found another place to go. So, at the time when the uh, tariffs were put on, we actually had an undersupply situation. So, I think this vintage coming up vintage 2023 in the new year we'll really see some big pressures and unfortunately a lot of the wineries just don't have capacity with their tanks to take the excess supply in into the wineries so i think we'll probably have to leave a lot of fruit um, out on the vineyard uh, for this season Australian wine, still the domestic market, is our biggest market. And it's just, yeah, supporting um, our local producers would be really um, beneficial for everyone.
12: Mitchell Taylor, Managing Director of Taylor's Wines. The avocado industry is also on the verge of another big crop. By 2026, the country's supply is anticipated to be at around 170,000 tonnes, more than double the 80,000 tonnes produced in 2021. Sarah tucker an avocado grower in South Australia's Riverland, says while growers may not be seeing a repeat of the glut experienced in 2021, this year's crop is once again looking strong. We
14: had a record crop last year, and every growing region in Australia had a record crop, so it was a massive amount of avocados, and we expect it this year to be a lot lighter than it is. It, the avocados have produced well again, <laughs> and we're busy, but uh, thankfully the market is better because there's not quite in influx that there was last year with all the other growing regions. It's looking good at the moment. Avocados are looking great for Christmas, so that's exciting so riverland Hass is still in season and will still be in season at christmas and just after christmas and then wa has will also be in the market and then we've changed from has to lamb has which is the slightly bigger has variety and then there's the the gorgeous emu egg reed that comes in as well reed has a little bit of a cult following so if people have had reed they will know what reed is reed is a big sort of round emu egg looking avocados lamb has almost looks identical to a hass, except it's slightly bigger and it has like I call them shoulders so it has like a where the where the stem goes the shoulders are a little bit wider I guess and the hass is lamb has a slightly bigger to the hass.
2: Sarah tucker Bame, an avocado grower in South Australia's Riverland, ending that story by Ashley Bagshaw with help from Eliza Berlage and Dimitri Panagiotaris. And if you'd like to check out more on that story, you can go online to the ABC Rural website. That's abc.net.au slash rural. We've got a few more suggestions here on how to eat your pineapple. Brian has Sri Lankan friends who serve pineapple sprinkled with salt as a side dish with curry. Now, Brian says he's not a fan of pineapple, but he does recommend this. That does sound delicious. Maybe something similar to the pineapple and tofu curry that John suggested. Gail from Murray Bridge has written in to say, pineapple fondue, spear large pineapple chunks. And then the text runs out. So I don't know what she's actually spearing the pineapple chunks and then dipping them in, but I'm sure it's not cheese. I'm imagining it's probably uh, chocolate or something like that. I'm not sure how uh, pineapple cheese fondue would go, but uh, I'm sure probably in a different sort of fondue. That would be delightful. Thanks for that, Gail. To keep your text coming, 0467 922 891 or phone 1300 222 I think the best pineapple I ever had because I'm not a major pineapple eater, but I'd I like it, but I don't love it. The best one I ever had was in Vietnam, actually, just uh, cut up on a roadside. That was absolutely delicious so uh, you can get good ones out there but uh, speaking of what's in season today is going to be my final chat with penny reedy about what's in season at the sa produce market now pineapples aren't here yet uh, and it's a bit of a late start for other produce uh, but there's still plenty coming onto the market as well in the lead up to christmas good afternoon penny
15: Good afternoon. Thank you so much for having
2: me. And Merry Christmas.
15: Merry Christmas to you. I love this time of year.
2: Well, I mean, for someone who loves their stone fruit, this is a great time of year. What's in good supply at the moment?
15: We've seen plenty of supplies coming through from the Riverland. You've got white and yellow peaches, white and yellow nectarines and your apricots. So it's fantastic to see those colours and the smells of those stone fruits are amazing when you go into your local fruit and veg store. So much that you can do with them. So plenty of supplies of them around.
2: And we've been talking about how cherries are a bit late this year. How are they looking in the lead up to Christmas?
15: Yeah, they definitely are late, Cassie. We would normally have them in really good supply at the moment, but we have seen the first of the Adelaide Hills started to arrive in the markets just this week. So um, the problem is the Hills growers, they just haven't had any sunshine and then they've had rain and then that causes havoc with them as well. So the growers are definitely doing it tough this season. I was talking to a grower at the markets this morning and they said that they expect to be picking the bulk of them between Christmas and New Year. So we know that we're going to have all the way through to January. So don't just look at them for your Christmas plate. Make sure you're enjoying them in the summer in January as well.
2: Now, possum has got to my blueberry plant, which I'm very sad about because <laughs> they're just starting to ripen up. But How are blueberries going? Because they've, they've been massive, some of the ones I've seen.
15: So the Riverland grows really good jumbo blueberries. So look out for them. They're tasting really good, nice and crispy, lots of flavour in them. So you will see them. So they're great for our Christmas pavlovas and our Christmas desserts. Um, the other berries around as well. Strawberries from the Adelaide Hills are now starting to have good supply. We know that they had a bit of a slow start to the season as well. And not grown in South Australia, but the raspberries and blueberries, um, raspberries and blackberries are also tasting really really good so if you want to really um a berry compote on your pavlova there's plenty of them around this Christmas
2: that sounds delicious now I love a good watermelon through summer melons are possibly my favorite category of fruit what sort of supply are they looking at
15: Yeah, so not grown in South Australia, but there's plenty of those summer fruits that are coming through in good supply. The watermelons, I had one last week that tasted amazing. Um, They are talking about the price of them going up. We haven't quite seen that yet, but grab them while you can at the moment. Also lots of mangoes, and there's so many different varieties of mangoes. We just did a post on our Pick A Local, Pick A Safe Facebook page that showed all the different varieties of mangoes, and I tried each one of them, and they do actually taste quite different. Did you have a favourite? Uh, I kind of like the honey golds. I think they're pretty tasty, So, but everyone's individual on what they like.
2: And just a random aside, rhubarb. Is yeah,
15: I saw some rhubarb in the sab- markets this morning, so I thought, oh, well, that's interesting. Adelaide Hills Grown Rhubarb is in, um, tasting really good. The quality of it's quite good. So if you're after something again for your entertaining over that period, look out for something Rhubarb Recipes.
2: I went to buy some herbs on the weekend, and where I went was completely out of supply. I think a lot of people are putting in herbs now after what was a pretty cool, uh, cool spring. I had some trouble growing uh, some of the plants through, through spring, so I was trying another go now, and it uh, seems everyone's had the same idea, and it uh, looks like you uh, are seeing um, that as well from your leafy, leafy green salads as well. Yeah, there's
15: plenty of options them around. We've got really good um, herds, The basil, um, there's a really good grower out in Virginia that grows amazing basil. So if you're looking for that, to, they go really well with tomatoes that are also in really good season at the moment. So um, plenty of that around from the growers out at Virginia. And leafy green salads, although we haven't quite got the sunshine, I mean, today's cold and miserable, but we will be looking for those leafy greens. And there's lots of pre-packed options from South Australian growers. They know kind of how lazy we can get so you can get kind of rainbow fresh salad bags that is a sweet mix or um, something like that you can just pop some tomatoes and cucumbers in or high fresh salads do you know asian noodle salads and lots of different salads that make it really easy for summer entertaining
2: and you mentioned the tomatoes. There really is coming into the time of year where, where, where tomatoes go berserk. I don't actually have any in this year, unfortunately, because we're going away. But, uh, yeah, any other summer veggies that I haven't thought of that are in good supply at the moment? The
15: cucumbers are in great supply at the moment. Look out, look out for these. And I was so sad the other day when I saw a big bin of ones that weren't perfectly straight and they were classed as seconds. And I find it quite sad that the growers don't get as much for their cucumbers if they're slightly bent. So I'm on a bit of a campaign. Let's buy all those ugly bent cucumbers because goodness me, they taste exactly the same as the straight ones.
2: Is there a reason why they're
15: bent in particular? No, I don't think there's a particular reason, but just some of them grow bent and um, they're classed as seconds. So, you know, and there's so many things you can do with cucumbers in your salad. So um, I'm I'm all for supporting our South Australian growers and I'm buying all the bent cucumbers. I'm I'm boycotting the straight ones this year.
2: (laughs) Well, I'm sure they taste just the same and would be just as great in a salad or something like that. Well, that's all we have time for, Penny from the Produce Market. It's been wonderful having you on the program this year and we look forward to you coming back next year. Excellent. Thanks for having me and Merry Christmas to you
15: and all the listeners
2: marketing manager at the SA Produce Market, Penny Reedy, and she'll be back next year on the first Monday of each month. So if you've got questions about what's in season, you can also send me a text 0467 922 891 or phone 1300 222 891 when Penny is on and she might be able to answer some of your questions. It's eight minutes to one.
3: Summertime is the time to stream happiness. You need a laugh. With comedy galore on ABC iView. Really? Let me show you. Brand new laughs like We're Logical and Summer Love. And then I got a little funny. And returning favourites like Fraid, Aftertaste, and Fisk and so much more. I'm loving them. Stream comedy happiness for free. Last one. All summer long on ABC iView. In the
4: You're listening to Cassie Huff on
1: ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill.
2: Suggestions on how to eat pineapples. John says, Fiji pineapples are delicious. I'd believe it after that Vietnamese one I had. John also, Nick from Jamestown's Jamestown likes pineapple fritters from the fish and chip shop. I'd endorse that as well. Now, <laughs> Gail from Murray Bridge, I don't think she appreciated me suggesting that her pineapple was, fondue was a pineapple cheese fondue, which I don't think sounds very appetising, but uh, she's rung in to clarify, <laughs> good afternoon. <laughs>
14: Hi, Cathy. there you going?
2: <laughs> I'm um, well, thank you. Now, cheese fondue with pineapple doesn't sound so good, but what you actually do sounds amazing. What do you do?
3: Well, um, I have a bowl of rum. So you, you, you stick your little spear into your pineapple and you soak it in the rum for sort of, you know, you don't do it for too long, otherwise it tends to fall off and go horrible. But you soak it in the rum, then dip it, roll it in brown sugar and then you toast that over the flame so it's all sort of nice and melty and syrupy, and then you dip it in some
2: really thick whipped cream and uh, eat it. It's fantastic. Oh, I love that. I love that it's kind of mixing Northern Hemisphere summer and Southern Hemisphere summer sort of together in one delicious meal.
3: Well, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, a, it's a great dessert. <laughs> and it probably tastes better than cheese and
2: pineapple fondue. Oh, oh, uh, well,
3: cheese and pineapple
2: okay, but yeah, but I think it is better. <laughs> <laughs> and I understand this is an old Whitman's Weekly recipe. Oh, was it okay? Yeah, I know. I've had another text in. Eva does the same thing. She does, and she said that wow. she got the recipe out of an old women's weekly cookbook. So,
3: oh, quite, quite possible. It was very big in the seventies, having a fondue party and yeah. doing all those sorts of things. So, yeah, it was great. Well, I do
2: <laughs> love fondue, so that sounds very much worth a go. Thanks so much for calling in and clarifying.
11: No worries. <laughs>
2: Gail from Murray Bridge there. Finally today, we we'll head to the Riverland, where almost all the fruit fly detections in the Riverland have been found in backyard fruit trees. So could removing these uh, unwatered trees help fight against the pest? Well, the State's Department of Primary Industries thinks so. So with its voluntary tree replacement program starting this week, Eliza Burlage went along to see how it's going. Chainsaws and wood chippers are being
16: given a workout as men in high viz dismantle and dispose of a grove of unwanted olive trees at this home in Wakery. Bursa says it's received seven applications for its voluntary tree replacement program in partnership with Loxton Wakery Council following door-knocking of the area in November. 16 of the 38 trees will be replaced with native shrubs. Local resident Sky Bianca Hughes is having 12 citrus trees removed from her family's fruit block. Her grandmother, Thelma Tilly, says they're grateful for the opportunity to get rid of dying trees that have become unmanageable. Uh,
17: they remove seven trees and they give us a few trees, the ornamentals, but uh, for any other trees with fruiting and that, I've got to put them in myself. Did the contractors put the new trees in for you? No, they haven't put them in yet. They won't be put in until next year.
16: The trees that were removed today, what type of trees were they? It
17: was a mixture of trees. Uh, there was a plum tree, uh, an old grapefruit and uh, nectarine and uh, just just trees that have been there ever since we've come here and they've just sort of gone rotting at the butt and uh, not bearing fruit so it was better to have them replaced and was
16: really good. When you first heard about the program, Did you say that was through door knocking?
17: Yes, they came
16: and uh, knocked on the door
17: and uh, told us about what they were doing in the Riverland and uh, made a date with us uh, to come later in the year and uh, have a look at everything. And uh, so today they arrived and it was really good.
16: (laughs) And they they did it pretty quickly. How long were they here for?
17: Oh, they arrived arrived about nine o'clock and uh, took a little while to get started they had some trouble with their truck getting it going it stopped (laughs) but they restarted that and uh, moved down to the orchard and um, then they started uh, cutting down and they were chipping all all the uh, timber so it was really good there was nothing left behind everything was nice and clean
16: how long had the trees been in your family for most of them have been here since
17: 1962 and uh, we we did replant some trees when we came here but I, I can't remember now how many there were but uh, most of them are very old trees so it was good to get them
16: redone. So no hard feelings about yeah letting them go? Oh no, <laughs> they're
17: looking too ugly.
16: <laughs> what do you think about the, the fruit fly fight efforts? Well
17: I think if everyone does the right thing, that's the main thing and uh, bag everything up and put it, you know the fruit fly people do their part by coming and picking it all up so that's good and uh, we've just got to bag it and keep our property clean so if everyone did that it'd be good
16: (laughs) Do you think they'll be able to eradicate it?
17: I don't know, it's a big thing I think it might go on for a while but I think probably doing the right thing gradually they may eradicate it
2: Wakery resident Thelma Tilley speaking with Eliza Burlage. Obviously Fruitfly is still a massive issue. They're, they're still uh, fighting it. There's, there's still restriction zones in the Riverland, so vigilance is still needed as well and PERSA is taking interest from uh, residents in other parts of the region so you can contact the fruit fly hotline on 1300 666 010 or go to fruitfly.sa.gov.au That's all from me but Deb Tribe will have more fun and information for you this afternoon on your ABC local radio as we are approach. Approach
4: one o'clock, time for news. ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. I've been here for 35 years, mate. And the
16: weather is beautiful. (laughs) When I first moved here, yep, I had a lot of friends saying, What are you doing? Hear it anywhere, anytime via the ABC Listen app. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.